Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, would you turn to Psalm 14? This morning we're going to continue our sermon series this summer through the Psalms. So if you have your Bibles, turn there. Uh, Many of you will have gone last week, but we had a real special opportunity to be able to celebrate um, 20 years since GCF was initially planted. And so we met up uh, at uh, Fourth Memorial up near our central church up there. And so it was a real joy to be able to gather with all of the other churches that we share in partnership with. And it is uh, a real A joy to be able to just hear the stories and the testimony of all that God has done throughout the years. And so that was a real sweet experience, a real sweet time for us to be able to look out and see the many lives God has drawn together in a common vision of church and life and the gospel. And so this is something that we were able to celebrate. And at the same time, we recognize we are sent out to local areas within Spokane. And this is a conviction that we have. We don't just all come together to build one massive church, but we continually send out smaller churches to be able to minister in local communities and local churches. And so this is what we are. And so we can really rejoice in all the work that God has done and also recognize that that sends us with a calling to continue to go. And so this will even be the case for us someday uh, if the Lord would bless us to that extent to be able to continue to send. And so it kind of starts to feel daunting right after we've planted, but this is the mission of the church, to continue to shape and form disciples. And so our hope is that we would at some point plant again. Uh, And so this is something that is sweet for us, and we recognize the goodness of God upon us as a church, and we pray that His grace would continue with us. So turning to Psalm 14, one of the things we see in the Psalms is a Uh, These regular patterns within these songs, these hymns that God had given to his people that shape and form his people. And so there are many different types of psalms we're going to run into for different situations. And so they have some situational specificity of this is for those people in this type of situation. How do I respond when I face this type of life circumstance, so to speak? And this morning we're looking at another lament And this will be different than Psalm 13 in that this is a corporate lament, speaking on behalf of God's people as a whole. How do we respond to things that we experience together? How do we respond to these things? And what is our attitude towards the world around us? And so this is something that we're not necessarily very good at in our kind of modern American culture. We often think in terms of individual circumstances only or we like to pull ourselves back into those. And yet, uh, oftentimes as the church, we're dealt with as the church. Christ died for his church, his bride. We are being made into the image of God with one another. So this becomes extremely helpful for us as we think of our role within the church. What are we being shaped into? And as we lament as the church, there are many things that we see within culture that don't fall in line with what We see the church called to be with what we see God creating the world to be. And this should grieve our souls to a certain extent. It may even cause us some righteous indignation, some frustration. All sorts of emotions come out of this as we say this is not the way it was created to be. This is not the way God's world is meant to be. And even as we look out at our world, there are 
many, many times in which we see people who have rejected God wholeheartedly. Uh, Duke philosophy professor Alex Rosenbergs, he wrote some d- different books, and in one of his books he lists a set of questions and answers because he wants to be very clear about the approach that atheism has towards morality and God. He doesn't want any further questions about this, so he says, I'm just going to create a question and answer dialogue. So he creates his questions and answers them. Here are a few of them. He says, is there a God? No. No shock there. He says, what is the nature of reality? He says, what physics says it is? What is the meaning of life? He says, there is none. Why am I here? Just dumb luck is his response. Is there a soul? Is it immortal? He says, are you kidding me? Next question. What happens when I die? He says, everything pretty much goes on as before except us. He says, what is the difference between right and wrong, good and bad? And his response is, there's no moral difference between them. So the next question, why should I be moral? Because it makes you feel better than being immoral. And he says, is abortion, euthanasia, suicide, paying taxes, foreign aid, or anything else you don't like forbidden, permissible, or sometimes obligatory? And he says, anything goes. Anything goes. So you can see how there is very clearly at the heart of an absolute rejection of God, initially just kind of a meaninglessness, and it continues along to the point where it actually comes to the point where we say, this grieves my heart to see the result of what rejection of God looks like. And as believers, we need to know, what do I do with that? What do I do with that? When I am faced with that type of perspective, how am I to think about it? Am I just to move on? It doesn't matter at all. Am I to engage with it? Am I to take them out? What do you want from me, God? And Psalm 14 starts to give us some answers of how are we to rightly lament? How are we to rightly respond to this situation? If you'd stand with me, let's read, do read Psalm 14 together and see what God's word has to say here. Psalm 14, verse 1 says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? They are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's do pray as we jump into this psalm this morning. Father God, we do come before you asking, Lord, would you be gracious to us? Would you help us to understand your word? Would you help us as we seek as your people to learn how to respond in our own hearts and souls to the things that are really very hard for us, to the proclamation of the rejection of you, Lord, once we see the goodness 
and beauty and majesty of all that you have built and you've called us to. Lord, it is hard to know what to do when we're faced with godlessness. So Lord, as we seek these things, would you help us to be humble? Help our hearts to be shaped by your word. Help us to come under your word. Lord, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So here in Psalm 14, we hear some rather stark statements that there are those who reject God completely, absolutely. There is no God. And the believer's response should be one of lament. So here in Psalm 14, primarily what we're looking at is a lament of the rejection of God. We see the rejection of God and we rightly lament this. We rightly grieve this. We may even find uh, emotions of anger and frustration in the midst of this. But it is a lament. And this is something that is meant not to just be a raw emotion, but to be a right emotion placed within the context of Scripture. So there is a couple things that I think we can start to see here that we want to draw out of this lament. As we lament, what are we doing Three things. We are lamenting the destructive result of this rejection of God. We are lamenting just the absolute nature of this rejection of God. And we are also lamenting we are looking towards our only hope in the face of this rejection. So let's do look back at verse 1 in which we see the lament that leads us to a lament of the, the destruction of the rejection of God. Verse 1 again says... The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. This is speaking quite specifically in uh, this language, the Hebrew language. Uh, there would be three words for the fool. And these are not often what we think of when we think of the fool. We sometimes think of just foolishness of mental ability, but it is talking about a moral condition in all of the words in Hebrew. It's a moral condition. So it is as if you, if you had a moral compass, that thing is broken if you were spoken as a fool in this sense. You don't have any ability to discern good from evil. And so this is what it is talking about here. And so as we reject God, we say that there is a brokenness to your ability to discern good and evil, an ability to even recognize this. The fool then is corrupt. They do abominable deeds. They don't do good at all. And it is fairly stark language. It's not saying, well, if you just had the right ability in your mind, ability to think well, ability to reason well, you might be able to get to God. And the Hebrew language, in some sense, is much more helpful than ours as they speak of this foolishness to say it is a moral condition before God and reason and ethics. Peter Singer, uh, he's a Princeton philosopher, and he presents a unique perspective as he thinks about how are we to think in the world because he's an atheist who is actually extremely consistent. We read him in seminary just to start to get our minds around one of the thinkers of our day who's extremely influential in some of the abortion issues. Uh, and one of the things he begins to start to teach is where is the value of life? Where is the value of humans? Where should we find this? 
And we obviously place this in the fact that we are image bearers of God, supremely selected amongst God's creation for unique relationship with him. And there is something unique about that relationship. Yet Peter Singer enters in and he says, uh, a weak old baby is not a rational and self-conscious being. And there are many non-human animals whose rationality, self-consciousness, awareness, capacity, and so on exceed that of a human baby a week or a month old. The life of a newborn baby is of less value than the life of a pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee. One of the things he does is he places the value of anything on its own awareness of itself and also its value to society. And so he's trying to be as consistent in his logic as possible to say there's no value to a baby until it actually produces some value in itself. And it is pretty harsh when you think of how far this goes. And some of the things we read from him got even further and further uh, starting to push into things that are very uncomfortable to even think about. And one of the things he says is, I won't even publicize most of what I am thinking because the world's not ready for it yet. And you get down to that degree of brokenness and you can recognize this is the result of the rejection of God. And so even though Psalm 14, to those who don't believe in God, might sound harsh, we say, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. There is a belief here and an understanding of our condition apart from God that it moves further and further away from goodness, from righteousness, from the things that we love in this life, from the things that all people see as good. It gets fairly dark fairly quickly. And we can recognize that this is kind of the picture of life apart from God's presence post God entering in. God saw before the flood it was extremely wicked. Every thought of their heart was continually wicked. I mean, this is a bad place to be. We recognize that this is constantly the case, but it is hard to know what to do with this. And oftentimes we will think of Uh, religion and Christianity and God and people will see the suffering in the world and one of the things that they will do is that they will say, well, God's the problem. If there's suffering, it must be God. And they will point to things like the Crusades and say, obviously, God caused these things. God allowed these things. Why is it happening? And yet, Psalm 14 would direct us away from this type of thinking, helping us to realize It is not God that creates corruption. It is not God that creates abominable deeds. It is not God that has made these things in this world, but it is the absence of God. It is the rejection of God and his good world. It is the rebellion against God that has brought these things. And it gets worse and worse and worse apart from God. So we know and we believe that religion, especially religion as it is seen within Christianity, is not the problem. When we think of how do we respond to those who would turn away from God, who would completely destroy the image of God as far as they see it, it would completely devastate everything God created as good. 
brings us a lot of sorrow, a lot of grief, a lot of hurt. We can see these things, and it can bring some frustration up within our soul. And in Psalm 14, we're invited to identify with all of the saints what it is that bothers us rightly. This gets really difficult when you're dealing with things that are not quite as clear as someone like Peter Singer. Like with someone like him, there's many who get down to the depth of his depravity and say, I don't want to be that type of atheist. I want to be a moral one. Or there's some who try and grab bits and pieces of this and and build it all together. So this is not necessarily an easy thing to know what to do with. And there are ways in which we can look at any aspect of godlessness and say, I am broken by that. I'm broken by my own sense of rejection of God when it happens, when I need to confess my own sin. But I also see it within the world, and I can be grieved by that. I can be broken by that and see exactly how destructive it is. It is not just partially destructive. This is totally destructive. This is the point of Psalm 14 using this type of language to say, in the absence of God, it is not Good And the rejection of God, it is extremely ugly. And yet there's this appropriate way to deal with these things, to declare it, to bring it before God, to say, this is what I see, this is what grieves me about what I see out there. There are certainly inappropriate ways for the believer to deal with these things. As we can see, we live in a very tense culture in which people just respond to their emotions any way they think. And you can even see this in politics when people start to say, I disagree with a different political party, and they'll fly flags which have profanity blazing down the highway. And we say, well, that is certainly probably somewhat satisfying to your soul to some degree, but it is not what God calls us to. That is not the way that Psalm 14 leads us to deal with the things that we see as broken in the world. And we see things that get worse and worse. We can be tempted to slander them, to say all kinds of evil things about them, to reject them, to want to destroy them, to say if their business is opposed to God, I'm going to destroy it absolutely, totally. And this is certainly perspectives that exist within our world, and yet believers are called to something different. doesn't mean they ignore it. But they are led to bring these things before God, to declare what they are, to say rejection of God, this is what it produces. And don't hear me wrong, I'm not saying that godlessness and foolishness shouldn't bother us. I think you should hear this very clearly, that it does bother us. Psalm 14 leads us to say, this should not, your soul should not be satisfied with what you see, with what you feel in the rejection of God. In fact, it should be very bothered. And yet there is a proper way to deal with it, a very robust way to deal with it. Not to just fly off the handle, do whatever you think you need to do, but to be able to come before God's word and say, Lord, you're aware of these things. They bother me. Would you help me here? When we're faced with abortion, when we're faced with sexual promiscuity, when we're faced with these things within our culture that are normalized, gender ethics that are imposed upon our schools, 
these different areas of life that can really get us fired up very quickly, and they are results of godlessness, we can turn to Psalm 14 and have some language for this. When we don't know what to do or what to say, God's Word certainly does have something to say if we're willing to listen to it and follow it. The fool says in his heart, there is no God, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds, there is none who does good. There is language for this. A laments teaches how to rightly respond, how to act, how to feel as the people of God. How do we look and behave in the face of a godless world? In Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7, one of the things that the people of God were faced with was their own rebellion against God. And yet as they're heading into this godless nation who had come into Israel and then Judah and pulled them out from what God had allowed them to be taken into captivity. And as they're heading into captivity, uh, the prophet Jeremiah speaks these words on God's behalf. He says to the people, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare, and you will find your welfare. There is a tension within Scripture here that says godlessness is godless, and God would indeed come and deal with the Assyrians for all that they had done, even towards his people. He judged them very harshly at that point. But you notice the way that they engage with the godless nation. doesn't mean it's not a big deal. doesn't mean they don't reject it. doesn't mean they're not to be wholly set apart, not become those things. But there is a certain way to speak and to act. And Jesus portrayed this perhaps better than anyone you can imagine. He did not accept the worldliness, but he definitely lived amidst it. And he would teach his disciples. In Luke chapter 6, verse 35, he says, But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. And we see through this lament that there is an ability that Jesus just displayed here to call sin what it is. It is evil. It is wicked. It is unrighteous. It is not good. And you can still be merciful. Pretty baffling the way the believer is to model the way that God has even modeled his relationship with us to be merciful, to enter in in the midst of our own rebellion of him. And for us, we start to ask the question, okay, Rejection, absolute rejection of God is, absol- is, is devastating. It's destructive. It is the problem in this world. And yet how far does this problem really go? How far does this problem really go? As we continue in this lament, we see the absolute nature of this rejection. It is complete. The absolute nature of this rejection. Let's look back at verse 2 to 4 here. Psalmist continues, he says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. 
the God of heaven who is full of wisdom and justice, perfect in all that he does, looks down from heaven on the children of man. That's to speak of those who are not the people of God, the Gentiles in the land. And he's looking down and he's saying, am I being too extreme when I say their deeds are abominable? And how far does it go? And God looks down and he says, is there any wisdom, any goodness, any righteousness apart from my presence? Is it really fair to say the things that I have said about the world? And he says they've all turned aside in verse 3. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And you start to get the picture of what's going on here. God is saying it is absolutely destructive apart from me. The rejection of me and my character and the good things that I have brought into this world, it is absolutely destructive. And there is not just a little bit of good here. It is complete. For us as those who would say, well, we're the righteous, the Apostle Paul actually picks up the argument here from Psalm 14. And the Apostle Paul looks at us in Romans 3. And he says, if you think that your position as a Jew helps you here, uh, no. He's quoting here. He says, Jew or Greek, none of you. You can go read it in Romans chapter 3. He's picking up this argument and he's reminding us it is absolute, complete. The devastation of your rejection of God is everywhere. This is what the nature of sin is. And this is difficult to believe or to understand because we do have this picture of God's grace and his mercy upon this world. His common grace is evident everywhere. And we start to look out and we say, well, I, I mean... It doesn't seem like God's here, and I see good things all over the place. I see these things that might be evidences that apart from God, there might be hope. To believe in this absolute corruption that is complete, there's a certain amount of belief we have to trust God because of his mercy upon us, because he did not abandon us to the destruction of our souls. He did not abandon us. In fact, he kept his hand upon us. He was merciful to us. And in the face of this, actually we even as believers have to learn with the rest of society how to not start self-justifying and say, well, there's a little bit better in me than them. And for the society out there to say, well, maybe I can make it without God because there's some bits of hope within this world. So we learn as believers how to turn to God and to thank him for all the things he's done in this world. When we've been given a good job, we thank him for it. When we've been given a meal on our table, we thank him for it. When we've been given health, we thank him for it. When we've been given the ability to have good relationships, we thank him for it. When we've been given the ability to go forward and build a church here in the valley, we thank him for it. When we are able to do all these things that anyone else would be able to look in and say, is that really God? We are saying, yes, it is God, and I will not turn anywhere else because I know that the only good things in this world do come from God. So there is a sense in which there are glimpses of morality in every corner of the world. 
and we have to learn how to see it. We have to learn how to see it. And those in the world are not able to see it. The corruption has gone to every corner of the world. Romans chapter 1, a very familiar passage to many of us. When the Apostle Paul starts to build this massive argument for God's holiness and righteousness and the gospel that is dependent entirely upon him, he says this. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and the divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. God's work, his righteousness, his goodness, it really is very clear to see for us as believers, for the unbelievers, but we reject it. We say, I don't see it there. I don't want it. I don't want to believe that that's him. God's attributes are everywhere within morality, within society. This is God's presence there. And it is only received especially by his people through something that's very particular for us. But his grace is far-reaching within the world. Uh, in 1948, post-World War II, there was this document that was released because of the atrocity that had happened through Hitler and everything that was going on. And they, the world kind of recognized we need some declaration of human rights. And so they put together this committee to, to build this document, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And so one of the things they're trying to establish is there's got to be some basic agreement amongst the nations about what are people's rights that would require us to kind of step in and help there. And Eleanor Roosevelt was the moderator of this thing, and she was leading the charge, so to speak. And there were many who had come with different perspectives, as you might imagine, about what this should be. But between her and another man, Charles Malik, an Orthodox theologian, though he was from Lebanon, he was building most of his arguments on Judeo-Christianity. So this is kind of this picture from Eleanor and him, and they're starting to say, like, here's where ethics and morality and the value of human is grounded is within this picture that's coming out of the Bible. Which I would say, and you would say, absolutely is true. That's the only place we're going to find any picture of ethics and right value of who God is and who we are. And many others disagreed very harshly with this. P.C. Chang, one of the representatives from China, got into some severe debates about this, and one of the things he said is, no, I want everything, any reference to God taken out, because he was um, a believer of Confucianism, which was a belief in the ancient Chinese world, and he's saying, I want all the references to God gone, because this is not where you find morality, the value of human life. So there is a temptation regularly over and over again to deny God, to say, it's really not that bad. We can make it on our own. We can make do without God somehow. We want to say that it's not really that bad out here without God. Let's remove him completely and we'll be just fine. That's the attitude of the world in this moment. And yet for us as believers, we say, 
No, we can't. This rejection of God is extremely destructive, and it is absolute. It's everywhere, and the only way to go is back towards God. So as we think of these things, and as we lament, and we recognize it is indeed bleak within the world, the narrative of Scripture is somewhat sobering when you think of the perspective of humans When you think of, is there anything in us that makes God say, ah, there's some who might be righteous, who might seek after me, who might be able to make a go of this. Abraham ran into this when he's looking down upon the city and he's speaking with God and Sodom. He's saying, if there's just a few, and you start to get this narrative again and again, is there any? It is but by the grace of God we start to see That's the only place you find hope. So as this lament continues on, we see that there is a rejection of God that causes our lament, but there is also a turn. We don't just find ourselves in sorrow and sadness, but there is hope that laments always turn us back to. If your hope is not here, where is it? And it says... We do have one and only hope in this rejection. Let's look back at verses 5 to 7. He goes on to say, There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but God is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel rejoice. Be glad. There is the stark contrast that exists everywhere, but especially here, between those who trust God and those who reject God. Those who trust God and those who reject God. The psalmist says, Those who call upon, who do not call upon the Lord, those who have turned from God, those who are attacking the work of God, he says, they are in great terror. Why? Not because the righteous that God has called are extremely capable because they're going to rise up. No, because God is their refuge and he is with the generation of the righteous. It is God who does these things. What is our only hope set on? It is Christ's righteousness. We look to everything in our lives, everything that is good, everything that God has redeemed about the church, about our lives, about who we are as the people of God. It is found entirely upon the righteousness of Christ. And in Romans 3, the Apostle Paul, remember, he was pulling everything away that we might claim as our own righteousness. And he says, it is God alone who is your righteousness. God alone who is your righteousness. Because it speaks of us here and it says, he is with the generation of the righteous. And we are tempted to think, well, maybe it's because I was a little better than them. (laughs) Maybe it was me. And yet here, this psalm pushes us back right squarely onto where we need to focus our hope to say, is it your righteousness? No. What is righteousness then? In simple terms, it's living the way God created you to live, upright living, living the way God created you to live. It is living 
totally, fully, completely the way you're supposed to live. From my outward actions, I'm living the way God created me to live, down to the way I think and my motivations, down to the very depths of my heart. This is who God made me to be. A righteous action is one that is done completely in line with the character of God as he created me to be. Pretty high calling here for us. This is why even the Pharisees' righteousness was not acceptable to God. Oftentimes we think, well, is is righteousness bad? No, righteousness is not bad. But it was not full. He says, you must be more righteous than the Pharisees. Because they would often do things for people to see. They would often declare things for people to hear. And they were doing the law perfectly. And yet God had far more for us here. To say, your only hope to stand before God the way you're supposed to be. To live your life the way it's supposed to be lived. Even for the way you've already lived that needs to be justified and reconciled with this righteousness. We see that we are entirely dependent upon Christ for this. It is impossible for us to claim this apart from the grace and the goodness of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul pushes us this way. And we recognize these words as fairly daunting. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Absolutely true. We stand before God in this position. And he goes on and he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who is through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to them this message of reconciliation. And he goes on to say, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become The righteousness of God. Astounding. The righteous who stand under the care and protection of God here in Psalm 14. We say, where is my hope found? Is it in my righteousness? Even here we recognize, I stand before the throne of God, recognizing the absolute corruption that exists apart from God. The absolute corruption that exists in the world apart from God. And the complete, absolute hope that exists in Christ's righteousness that starts to actually become who I am. And, and the Apostle Paul said, put that on. That is who you are. Live out of that. doesn't mean God's goodness, God's righteousness, the way we're supposed to live isn't something that motivates us to live rightly. But it is not our hope in this life. Our hope is found completely on the righteousness of God. He has become our righteousness Righteousness can't be gained through the law. Righteousness can't be earned through obedience to the law. It is the people God has chosen. He's chosen you to make you righteous. He's called you to this position, saying, out of the depths of this darkest darkness, out of the depths of everything you see in the world, the things that cause you great sorrow and lament as you look out at the world and you say, it's gut-wrenching at moments. 
I don't know what to do. The Psalms direct us to say, yes, it is. And in fact, it's far worse than you're probably even willing to admit. And the only place you find hope and joy and peace and the only place we can direct people back to again and again and say, don't go down that road in rejecting God. This is where peace and joy and goodness found lived perfectly in right relationship to God because God is merciful. He is gracious. He is good. Those are the, the words that we can find great comfort and hope in as we turn to the world around us to say, there's nothing <laughs> within the hope that the world presents that should give me comfort like this. There is something really sweet about this. Now as we continue to walk in the world, a lament like this teaches us, how is it that I engage with the world around me that rejects God? How is it that I am able to take another step how is it that I am able to speak kindly to those who've caused such devastation? And we're reminded, I too once did this. I too am just as guilty, but for the mercy and grace of Christ. Not justifying the evil actions, the wicked deeds, but calling to repentance. Giving mercy, giving grace, saying, it's not okay but God has given mercy, so I can give mercy. There is indeed great hope for our souls as we find ourselves frustrated, angry, sad, broken. There are a million different things we will face as the church. Persecution, hardship, famine. There are moment after moment after moment that we will face in which those who reject God, it gets ugly. It gets really ugly, the way this psalm describes it, and yet there's hope for us. So this morning as we worship our God, we can be directed to this one place that we can find our hope. And it doesn't mean we don't have a place to say, this is what it's feeling like in my soul. There's turmoil in there. We can turn back again and say, yes, that turmoil is right. The brokenness that you feel within your soul, the frustration, the angst, the anger that you feel, that is right. And that's a good feeling. Hope in God. Let's do pray. Father, we come before you this morning, humbled by your grace to us. Lord, even at moments we find ourselves lamenting all that we see within the world around us all that we see in those who reject you, that they hate your word, they hate your works, they hate your name, Lord. We don't always know what to do with those. And yet you have given us a place to rest under your goodness, to rest under your grace within these words. Lord, help us to trust you more fully here, that you would be our refuge in these times. You would be our comfort, that we would be able to trust that you will restore our fortunes. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.